everyday injustice. Too many wrongful convictions, corruption has infected the criminal justice system. Leaving too many people helpless, fighting for their lives instead of receiving justice, people suffer. Is that why they say justice is blind? Hello and welcome to the Everyday Injustice Podcast. I'm your host, David Greenwald. For the past 10 years, we've operated Vanguard Court Watches in California, including San Francisco, Sacramento, and Yolo counties. Our goal? Expose everyday court injustices, and now, more broadly, shine a spotlight on injustices in the entire criminal justice system in the form of wrongful convictions, police and prosecutorial misconduct, and mass incarceration. This podcast hopes to take it a step further and highlight criminal justice reform on a national level. Everyday injustice. Today on Everyday Injustice, we have the case of Walter Barton. Walter last week was executed despite considerable evidence of him being innocent. And we have on the show two people that are going to speak on his case. Paula Skillicorn, who's a longtime friend, and Deborah Barden, who is his wife, or his ex-wife, I guess. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you, David. So what I I think, let's start with um, just a quick intro and... uh, Tell me how you guys uh, met Walter and how long you've known him. I've known Walter 20 years. Uh, I've been married to him for 18. Um, I'm not his ex-wife, but we are still legally married. We were still legally married when he was killed. Um, Sorry. (laughs) Yeah, and that's how I met Paula as well. So, um, okay. yeah, so I was married uh, to a man under death sentence who was uh, ironically murdered by the state of Missouri 11 years almost to the hour um, uh, as Archie. And I met Deb when she was visiting him and we became friends. Um, my husband knew Archie, and um, my husband and I helped start 4-H Life, which is a 4-H program for uh, families who are um, families of the incarcerated. And so we were able to um, better know Deb and Archie, uh, Walter, um, through the 4-H programs that were held every month at the prison. So when she was there, she could come and uh, lots of times she could come even though he didn't have family with him. He was sort of a special guest for the club. So that's how we really got to know each other well, I think. And then Deb and I, of course, did a lot of things together uh, when we weren't visiting and became good friends. And let's talk about his case. Um, So he's convicted in 2006. Uh, Tell us about uh, the the case. Uh, I I assume... uh, Deborah, that uh, that you knew him at the time uh, of the trial. So, uh, were you there? Did you go through that? Yes, yes. We were we were married on the sixth of September two thousand and two. 
Yeah, they missed out quite a lot. I mean, there was a lot that should have been asked, should have been said, should have been noticed. I think what happened was even though the prosecutor, Robert Arson, refused himself because of the misconduct claims, he went back and assisted Wincliffe. And sitting in that courtroom, it was like Groundhog Day. I was hearing Robert Arson all the time. It was exactly the same stuff. Complete and total farce. And, you know, um, what's really interesting to me is, you know, you have these cases, and and I cover a lot of these, and, you know, here's this case, and there are all sorts of problems with it, and you end up at the end of, of the case with all these questions about guilt. Why are you executing somebody under those conditions? Basically, because they just wanted him off this planet in the hope that it would die down. They're I'm pretty sure that was their. I think pretty sure that's their attitude. I have um, a different thought on that. Um, that? I worked uh, as a reporter for years, and I covered cops. And I asked a detective one day, "Why do you continue to inflate charges against everyone you arrest?" And he said. That way, when we go to court, if we have to give something up, we can give up the ones that aren't true. So what happens a lot of times is that um, things are inflated because police are under pressure to get a conviction. uh, And all too often, they settle on someone as a likely suspect. We've seen this over and over again in Missouri and across this country. And then they just focus on that evidence. There was evidence of two, two, two and even more potential suspects that was ignored. Uh, and instead, they just focused on him. And there's a lot of evidence that um, showed it wasn't him, but they did not test it against any of the other suspects. And I just think that, um, again, they looked at him, and he had had a past that, that did include assault, but nothing like this at all. No knife, not, nothing at all. They were they were with while trying to commit a robbery um and they just felt he was would be easier to get a conviction and i i've heard um prosecutors say that i've heard police say that uh it's it's more important about you know who can you get convicted than it often is about who really did it um i think the, the the most egregious part of this to me is that how any jury with common sense could look at a clothing that has a drop or or tiny drop or two of blood on it and uh i guess i guess they were also told there was blood on the shoes but turned out to be oil um but to to think that someone who's close enough to stab a person 50 times slit her throat from ear to ear cutting down to the jugular and cutting x's into her stomach so that her intestines came out would walk away with a drop or two of blood. I can't understand their rationale that common sense tells you you're going to be covered with blood if you're doing that. And Walter had people all from, from all day long testifying. He had the same clothes on as when he was arrested from, from the morning to the point of the arrest. And that just floors me. So I think, um, 
that's why we see prosecutors, re, you know, relying on prosecutorial misconduct, relying on lies, relying on fabricated evidence, and relying on inflammatory uh, language to incense a jury and make them feel like they better get this guy or he's coming after them. And I've seen that time and time again. And that's really the key evidence in this case uh, for the innocents is, is the blood evidence. Now, I, I want to, um, and I'll get back to the quantity issue because I think uh, that that's really the key. But as I understood it, and correct me if I'm wrong here, uh, the blood matched her blood, right? Yes, because he had yes. fallen. He, he, when he tried to keep his, the granddaughter from touching the body, she and fell against him they both hit the bed so that she told police that and then later changed her her uh testimony and, and that again is so common in trials that testimony changes every time you have a trial uh i, I saw that with jim chambers um and they the prosecutors are, are uh, i believe um talk to the witnesses to get them to change it so uh, they can fit the scenario better. That happened with Jim Chambers uh, when they when they proved that the witness could not have seen him out the window because the window uh, was uh, covered with I think plywood. He changed his tune, and they ended up killing Jim too. They just um, they get their themselves set on a person, and they do whatever they can to kill that person. So I want to ask, because um, I'm trying to set the scene here, what is he doing at the scene of the crime in the first place? He was picked up and taken there. He was having supper with another resident of the trailer park um, when the granddaughter came down and said they hadn't been able to get him to get a contact with her grandmother. Um, would he come down? And help them come get him. Um, so that's what that's what he did. He walked down there, took him about three or four minutes. He just changed his coat, explained where he was going, and went. When he went down there, it was obviously something was not right in there. Um, it should have it should have been like it was evening. It was still like it was afternoon. It was very very quiet. So that is the only reason Archie went down there is because he was picked up to be taken there. And the other thing is, the copper one shot, Lara Hodges, he went off on another call, and the locksmith was there, and Archie helped the locksmith get in. And he did that by holding a torch above his head. So he would have been in full view if there had been any blood on him by that light shining straight onto him. Mm-hmm. There was no blood on him up until he fell on that bed, by that bed. There are a lot of um, kinky things that went on that the police chose not to investigate that I believe would have shed light on the real killer. Um, But because I can't prove that, I'm not going to accuse someone um, in public. But, for example, there was blood under the fingernails of the victim. So she obviously fought her attacker. And there was a hair on her stomach, neither of which were were Archie's. But instead of taking that investigation further into other potential suspects who had been acting 
very strange and who had a history with this woman and uh, she was afraid of this person. They did not bother to do that. Uh, and again, just said, it's not his, but I guess that doesn't matter. And, you know, I want yeah. Please go ahead. While he was at that trailer park that morning, he was doing some work for the victim, one of the tenants. So he had a pen knife on him. So when they took him in and they stripped him down, they checked absolutely everything, including the pen knife, no blood, nothing at all, other than the bits on the shirts where it's fallen. None of this makes sense. So, uh, you know, just just to set again the scene here. So basically, uh, this is a horrific knife attack. He he stabbed her. You said fifty times. He he cut her her jugular. So there should be blood everywhere. And instead of having yeah. blood, uh, he'd be soaked. Uh, basically in, in blood uh, if he he is the actual perpetrator in this case. Instead, he's got some drops of blood on him. And um, the jury basically um, came back and said, look, you know, if we had known all this, uh, we would have, uh, we would not have convicted. Um, and the court said, well, you know, uh, just because they said that doesn't mean that it's sufficient to uh, overturn the case. Uh, do I have that right? Yep. They did that in my husband's case as well. The foreman said if he had known what we brought to him, he would never have uh, have uh, voted for death. And they, uh, the governor in, uh, ignored that too. It just, it, it just boggles the mind. You know, it, it'd be one thing if this were a life case and you said, well, there's not enough to overturn the conviction, but we're going to uh, keep him in, in prison and then we can figure out if uh, there is enough evidence to overturn it. In this case, we just execute the guy, uh, even though there's all this doubt as to whether or not he did it. It, it, it just makes absolutely no sense to me. The governor had that option chose not to use it. Even the former Supreme Court judge, Michael Wolf, who all along dissented in this case and, and criticized this case, he wrote a very powerful editorial saying what a mess this case was and that um, Arkey should not be executed. And the governor ignored him as well. The governor is a Republican. Whether that plays into it or not, I guess People will just have to think about that on their own. Um, I don't know this governor, so I don't know. He had another, he, they petitioned another option in the state of Missouri. You also have the right to have an impartial panel decide on clemency instead of the governor. Uh, we had requested that in our case because the governor who had just been elected had been working very hard through his career to get my husband executed. And so he never even replied to that, just went ahead, set a date, and ignored it. Um, this governor, from what I understand, also ignored that request and said he was not going to um, give clemency. So I, my fear 
is that that whole feeling of five trials that that insinuates to many people who don't understand the system that that means he had five chances to prove he was innocent and he never did it. But what people don't understand is that you, especially if you have no money, you rely on your attorney to make decisions. And there, this, in my opinion, is a game in which both sides play a little chess. And they use their strategy. The problem I have with that is if you have a trial attorney or trial, trial attorneys who are not um, particularly effective or don't do what you ask them to do, you are still held accountable for that. So in this case, the state had put forth uh, a blood spatter expert who said that, that this blood came from a high impact or something ridiculous like that. And the problem was, even though there was a, a blood spatter expert with much more experience and he was ready to testify that no way could this have this be the killer because the killer's clothes would have been soaked, nobody called him to testify. So juries didn't hear that. And the jurors said that they made this decision based on the blood spatter expert saying, oh, yes, it had to be the victim. But Archie told me that, that when he went in, there was blood on the floor that the, the, the comforter or quilt, whatever was on top of the bedspread, I guess, was soaked in blood and was still wet for quite some time after. Um, so that, that tells me that somebody who's doing the killing is going to be at least uh, as blood covered as that quilt. And that's ultimately what the uh, blood spatter expert that uh, the Innocence Project uh, came forward with uh, concluded, right? That right. Uh, there's no way that he would have that little blood on him given the amount of blood at the scene. Exactly. Um, because, you know, all, uh, you know, so that people understand, you know, it's not like he's, he's like throwing a knife across the room. He's like right, right. next to her when he's stabbing her. So blood's, yep going to be everywhere absolutely and, and she's not going to sit still she's she's moving so blood uh, she's moving blood's flowing everything's flying he should be covered uh i mean exactly. I've, I've seen these cases uh, where people are stabbing you know you see and and they'll you know they'll show the clothing and the clothing's just drenched in it exactly but in missouri they killed uh roy roberts on the same premise that supposedly he held this man who was being discarded, who was being stabbed to death, no blood on his clothes. He was a big man. Uh, guard testified that when the man was stabbed, Roy was elsewhere with him. And we had witnesses again who, uh, who, I'm sorry, who, uh, help me, I went blank, who um, said that they had lied because the prosecutor had persuaded them in some manner. So they recanted. Um, thank you. I'm, I'm sorry. I went blank there. And it did not matter. They killed Roy anyway. So Missouri has a hard on for killing people, in my opinion. But I, I know that's not nice to say, but that's kind of how, um, how I feel. We had a bloodbath, 14-month bloodbath, where they killed one person a month. Um, two of them did get some 
some relief, or, uh, temporary relief, but it, it's just outrageous. And again, people don't know this though because they, the reporters get the information from the police and the prosecutors, and typically defense attorneys do not talk to the reporters. So people get a one-sided view of what happened, and if that doesn't come out in trial, thanks to the 1996 Anti-Terrorist and Effective Death Penalty Act. Things can be procedurally barred. So we have had, well, the Larry Griffin, even though there was clear evidence of innocence, the Missouri Supreme Court at that time said that wasn't enough to stop an execution. Um, and what happens lots of times is some of this evidence you can't bring into court for your appeals because it's procedurally barred. Now, I do not know if if that was in Walter's case at all, because I was not, you know, I was not close to that case as I was to some others. Uh, but I do know that is a problem that people don't understand. So you've brought up some very interesting points, and I want to unpack a few. So um, I was really surprised to learn, and I actually have a background in Missouri, so I know a little bit about the state. Um but since 1975, 90 people have been executed in the state of Missouri. And that is, um, amazingly, uh, the fifth highest in the country. Uh, you know, states like uh, Texas and Virginia and Florida are obviously up at the top, but you have Missouri there, um, which I bet most people wouldn't have guessed. In the 90s, Missouri was higher than that. I think we were the third highest in the 90s. That's when they did a lot of um, uh, findings of the death penalty in court. They really went after death penalty a lot, and um, they were killing people a lot in the, in the early 90s. And then uh, the attorney, the appellate attorney, started working together and filing um, cases that would protect everyone. And we had almost a de facto moratorium or I think one judge did call it a de facto moratorium while we dealt with issues of a dyslexic doctor who was uh, not dosing people properly when um, he gave them the drug that was supposed to knock them out and all kinds of issues. So we had a, uh, a respite where we did not have any execution. And then Jay Nixon came on board as governor. He'd been the attorney general for God, I don't know, almost two decades, I think. And he started cleaning house. And these were all his cases. So he, it, you know, it's really to his advantage that they were gone. Well, he didn't get reelected. So I guess that didn't work out real well for him. But uh, at, at one point we were like the, we were vying with Texas at one point, but I think we were like third highest in the nation. By contrast, uh, California, where I live, uh, has only executed 13 people, and, and it's the largest state, and we currently have a moratorium uh, with the current governor. So um, I don't think anyone's been executed in California in almost 10 years, and it will probably be a while, uh, if ever, uh, before they start again. Uh, so just if putting you, that into perspective. If you look at the... If you look at the states that have the most executions, they are southern or border states. Um, yep. So that might be something. 
Um, so another issue that I, I want to kind of dig into a little bit and, and we'll bring uh, Deborah back in for this. Um, you know, a lot of times uh, prosecutorial misconduct goes hand in hand with ineffective assistance of counsel. So the prosecutor's cheating and uh, the defense attorney's not doing their job. Is that what happened here? I think it was a bit of both because it was definitely misconduct because there were a couple of incidents that actually happened while the trial was on, um, which I can't actually say now, but I will tell you in private, David. Um, with the defence attorneys, I think it was a case of basically there was a time restriction on the trial, so not everything was presented. It was as simple as that, and uh, there were statements made by people that should have been pulled up um, weren't. And it was it was it was a bit of both basically. And can you talk a little bit about how the Innocence Project got involved and what role they played in all of this? Are you talking to me or Paula? Yeah, yeah you. You. Oh right, could you repeat that? Because I didn't quite catch it. Yeah, I I said, uh, can you tell us a bit about how the Innocence Project got involved and what role they played? The Innocence Project, years ago, when this all first started um, coming up, there was a lot of publicity for Arky. The Innocence Project got involved. He had petitions up. He, he, was, he was very much publicised for it. The Innocence Project became involved at that point. Um, but unfortunately, because I think Missouri wanted to sort of have him under the radar, um, a lot of stuff was pulled down. His details were pulled off the Missouri De Department of Corrections site. Um, and it basically went from there. All of those people, and there were several thousand people that signed for him, Truth Innocence. Um, I created a forum for him after we came out of the 2006 trial. And it was one of the jurors who contacted me, contacted me through the forum said that she hadn't been happy with the evidence, and that was the original first forum. But unfortunately, one of Archie's lawyers, um, who basically abandoned him, insisted and demanded that all attention be removed from him, take it all down, we don't want it up here, we don't want this disattention for him, we do this. And that is basically what happened. But no, up to 2006 to 2009, he was very much all over the place. He had people from the um, European Union signing for him from America, Canada. So he did get a lot. He did get a lot of attention, but then we were told yank it all down, yank it all down. And and what's what's the last year been like in terms of all the attention that this case has gotten? Uh, did you get your hopes up, or did you always feel like this was going to go bad? I was I was naive enough to think that there was a proper justice system and would get my hopes up um, because I could not believe it was a real learning curve. It really was. Um, I could not believe that what they were doing to him. Archie, on the other hand, would frequently say to me, "Don't get your hopes up. Hope will kill you in here. You you cannot have hope on death row. You can't." 
it's as simple as that. So while I had hopes, he always, even though sometimes he would have a hope, he always tried to keep it up to because he had no faith in the system and that he'd get through this. It was heartbreaking. Yeah, I can see that. Um, and and then, you know, one of the things that I think I, I think people need to understand, you're absolutely convinced he's innocent, right? Yeah. And I'm convinced he's innocent because one of the lawyers was what she did, she sent me a transcript, make your own decision because he was going to assume that he's innocent and first time I went through them, second time, third time, and it came back to someone else. It came back to someone else completely. And I believed I, I, I had that opinion. I left it at that opinion. Um, in 2002, I found a whole lot of docket sheets against this person for second degree assault, restraining orders, um, breaking restraining orders, and they were against females, one of them another elderly female. And none of it, none of it was been taken into consideration. Wow. Well, I think it was the um, victim was having issues with at the time. As far as I'm concerned, this is elder abuse was escalated and gone bad. And then Archie has just been taken there and made the patsy because whoever took him there knew his record. I think a lot of people look at the death penalty and they get nervous about it, which I think is why um, the support for the death penalty has been going down in recent years as we learn more about wrongful convictions, as we learn that the system really does make errors. Uh, you know, there was a time when people didn't believe that the system convicted uh, people that were innocent. They believed that uh, the jury process and, and the... Um, the fact that uh, you, you had a uh, right to an attorney and the fact that, uh, you know, you put on competing evidence uh, and the fact that there were all these appeals and, and, in fact, for a long time, the concern was, oh, we, we have too many appeals, too many people are getting off on technicalities. Well, now what we've learned is that there are people that have uh, been sitting in prison for 10, 20, 30, 40 longer and they're innocent. And now what we're starting to learn is that we're executing people that were probably innocent. And this is a case that I think the evidence is pretty overwhelming. Um, uh, when you look at that blood evidence, when you look at the discrepancy between the crime scene and the amount of blood that he had on him, it, it is really hard to come to the conclusion that that's the guy who stabbed her 50 times. Yeah, it, it makes no sense at all. It really doesn't. And the thing, the thing about Arky was, even though he had previous convictions, and, and Paula will tell you this, um, he could be very naive about people. He could be very naive about people. He didn't have a whole lot of planning ability. If he had done this, he would have run. He didn't. He's been out in a car with three people. He's been in the trailer. He sat down for supper. Nothing. He's just not 
capable of that level of planning. It was as simple as that. And that is another reason why I believe it, because he wouldn't see what was coming, what was being thrown at him. He would just gone along with it, and I think that's what happened here. Yeah, and and the last point I want to make, and and then we're out of time, is you know there's no fail safe here, um, and and I I think that you know I've always been a death penalty opponent because I don't think you can teach people that it's wrong to kill by killing, but from a yeah. functional standpoint, the system doesn't work because there's no fail safe. If you don't have the ability to stop an execution when there's a reasonable or a realistic doubt. You know, I'm not talking about a crazy uh, conceived uh, conspiracy. I mean, we're we're talking about physical evidence here that doesn't match. And nobody could stop this execution. That is a failure of the entire system. I I would respectfully disagree there was someone who could stop this execution and that was the governor um but and and for that matter actually the courts could have as well and um yeah and i'll I'll change could have to would have yeah yeah fair enough yeah i want to thank you guys for coming on the show i know this is hard times and and difficult things but unfortunately um Walter Barden is not the only person that's in this position. We know uh, a number of people that are sitting on death row, even though there's substantial evidence of innocence. Uh, and in fact, I, w- I would argue that uh, the, the person that was previously executed down in Alabama, there was considerable evidence that he didn't do it, and they still executed him as well in early March. Closing thoughts. Could I could I just say one thing that I guess I think people don't quite understand. Um, I think it's comforting to say, well, we have found all of these innocent people and we have rescued them from uh, death row. But the point is, most of those were because someone else outside the system came in and did the investigation that hadn't been done as part of the system. So it's a fault sense of comfort that if you're innocent you will be released because that's only going to happen if somebody steps up to help you outside the system if you've already been convicted and you're innocent yeah and i think that's an important point i look at a lot of wrongful conviction cases uh and a lot of the ones that the exonerations happen it's almost a miracle that they occur uh everything kind of has to go right uh, in order for people uh, to get exonerated. And, and, and that's a problem because we're supposed to be innocent until proven guilty. And yet, as soon as that jury comes down with a guilty verdict, they assume that that jury made the right decision and, and they don't want to change that. Um, despite evidence that some of these decisions were not based on all of the evidence. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, I want to thank you guys for being on the show. Well, thank you for having us. Yeah, thank you, David. Thanks. Appreciate what you do. Well, thank you. This has been Everyday Injustice. I'm your host, David Greenwald. We were talking about the tragic execution of Walter Barden. 
who I believe was innocent. And uh, we killed an innocent man. And we're going to have to figure out how to stop that in the future. This has been Everyday Injustice. I'm your host, David Greenwell. Join us again next time for more tales from the injustice system. Thank you to George Powell and Norman Mousequake Barrett for the use of our opening Everyday Injustice. You can see more of George's music at www.justiceforgeorgepowell.com. That's justiceforgeorgepowell, all one word, dot com. <laughs>